Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Reese Ehrlich. He has been on before. He is an author. He is a journalist. He is currently on book tour around the United States. You find the schedule at reeseehrlich.com. And the paperback version of his book has just come out, Inside Syria, the backstory of their civil war and what the world can expect. Reese Ehrlich, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me. So the United States has uh, accidentally, intentionally bombed the troops of a government it's trying to overthrow. Worst bit of luck it's had in in weeks. Can you can you give us a, some of the backstory on on what has just happened in Syria? Well, the official version is that the United States accidentally bombed a Syrian military base near Deir Ezzor, which is in the eastern part of Syria. It's a city I've traveled to a couple times in the past, and uh, it is a city uh, near which uh, the Islamic State uh, has control. The uh, the problem with the U.S. version is that uh, so far, if it was genuinely a accident, the, and the U.S. wanted to maintain the uh, continued uh, ceasefire, I would have expected a much more heartfelt uh, uh, apology from Secretary of State John Kerry and others. Instead, we get this bellicose rhetoric blaming Assad for his bombing uh, and failure to deliver the uh, relief supplies to besieged cities, and in general trying to shift the blame to uh, the Assad forces and to uh, Russia. Uh, It just doesn't make sense politically uh, to do that if it was really an accident. I, I'm not saying you're wrong, Reese, but how many times has the U.S. government apologized in recent years and decades for for bombing people? I know they just gave a million dollars to the uh, family of an Italian uh, victim, but they don't do that for Middle Eastern victims. Uh, are you sure they don't just have a policy of not apologizing? Well, I, you know, ultimately, the U.S. apologized for shooting down an Iranian airliner in 1988 as well. You're right. In general, at the time, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, it doesn't show much remorse, but uh, they could have, uh, in the political statements afterwards, emphasized the, uh, the, the fact that this mistake, uh, while tragic, should not uh, interfere with the ongoing ceasefire. Uh, in fact, uh, it looks like it's just going to blow the ceasefire sky high. And what is the, the form of this ceasefire to begin with? I, I mean, it seems to be a ceasefire where, wherein only certain parties are supposed to cease firing. Uh, I mean, what kind of a ceasefire is that to begin with? Again, officially, uh, roughly a little bit over a week ago, the U.S. and Russia agreed to a ceasefire and a peace uh, offensive, if you will, uh, that was supposed to have the following element. Everybody that either side controlled would stop shooting. Uh, in other words, the Assad regime and its allies, Iran and uh, Hezbollah, uh, the U.S. and whatever rebel groups it controls would stop. And uh, if this, the ceasefire succeeded for seven days, then the U.S. and Russia would join together to jointly target Islamic State and al-Nusra, uh, that is the two extremist rebel groups, uh, target their facilities there, the cities they control, and so on, in an effort to have a joint uh, cooperation in, in, in fighting the extremist groups. The, 
peace plan had serious flaws from the very beginning. A similar one didn't work uh, back in February. And the, the basic problem is that neither side can agree as to who the extremists are. And secondly, the extremist groups themselves are not bound by the ceasefire, so they're going to attack particularly Assad and try and uh, scuttle the ceasefire. There, there was also a story in the news this week of a supposedly U.S.-backed, U.S.-controlled uh, group uh, cursing and shooting at U.S. troops, uh, clearly not a, a U.S.-controlled group. Who, who does the U.S. actually control in Syria? Not very many people. <laughs> That's the other serious problem. Uh, we hear in the U.S. a lot of kind of optimistic talk about the moderate rebels and uh, how, uh, you know, the U.S., they support the U.S. and so on. The, in the Kurdish community, there is cooperation with the U.S., although even that's up for grabs now. But among everyone else, that is Syrian Arabs, uh, the U.S.-backed groups have almost no popular support, and when they do get arms and come into the country from either Jordan or from Turkey, Almost immediately, they're captured by, in mostly the al-Nusra forces, and their weapons are seized, and the whole thing blows up in the U.S. face. The U.S. has spent over a billion dollars just in the southern front in Jordan, and has no rebels of any significant number to show that it's uh, for all that money and effort. Uh, and the, the problem is, the U.S. is incredibly unpopular in the Middle East. Uh, they're not trusted. People in Syria saw what the U.S. did in Iraq, and they're not interested in having that happen to them. And the result is, uh, even after four years of efforts, the U.S. has basically no popular support among Arab Syrians. It seems that Syria, as well as the rest of the region, is nonetheless full of U.S. weaponry, uh, and there is clear evidence of support over the years and currently uh, from Turkey and from Saudi Arabia uh, for the groups that uh, that the U.S. and Russia seem to consider the worst of the worst, ISIS and and others. And uh, you know, can does the ceasefire include any sort of arms embargo? Is there any new plan in place to stop saturating the region with weaponry? Uh, the answer to your first question is no. The ceasefire doesn't have anything, uh, it doesn't have put any uh, restrictions on Saudi Arabia or Turkey, for example, or nor on Iran and Hezbollah, for that matter, Yeah. in terms of uh, shipping in arms and so on. Um, the U.S., uh, well, a little bit of background, uh, and I've been to Turkey several times, as well as northern Iraq, uh, and the, the border into Syria is porous. And for a long time, at, at first, the Turks supported the Muslim Brotherhood. When they didn't seem to have much support, they switched over to al-Nusra and the Islamic State. And they know perfectly well that their borders were being used to ship in arms and fighters. I traveled on a plane uh, inside Turkey, and uh, there were Libyan um, political extremists on board in full beards and Arabic dress, and they claimed they were doctors helping the Syrians. They were they were guerrilla fighters. So it's not it's not a secret inside Turkey. The U.S. has put a lot of pressure on Turkey to stop that. Uh, the Turks themselves, the Turkish government realizes that you know they've been the subject of several horrendous uh, bombings, terrorist bombings inside Turkey, including the uh, Istanbul airport. Uh, so I think they have tried harder. Uh, but uh, by all indications, the, the border is still uh, rather porous, and these extremist groups are getting through with or without the support of the Turkish government. 
It's not clear what the, the U.S. policy aims are, uh, never mind Turkey's. Uh, the, the United States, uh, it seems, still wants to overthrow the Syrian government while also wanting to oppose opposition to the Syrian government. Uh, and there were stories a couple weeks back where the United States military was talking about defending its troops in Syria against possible Syrian aggression by Syrian troops, uh, which seems to be a way no other nation talks about its occupying armies uh, around the world. Uh, and now we have an attack, a defensive attack, presumably on Syrian troops by uh, occupying U.S. troops in Syria uh, that also has the advantage uh, for certain parties in Washington of, again, increasing hostility with Russia. How much of this is incompetence and how much of it is, is evil intentions? Oh, I think there's plenty of both to go around. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. is caught on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, some months into the uprising in 2011, the U.S. called for the overthrow of Assad. Um, and uh, that was the U.S. strategy for a number of years. Uh, it failed. Uh, Assad is still in power. And the... Uh, after 2014, in the summer, when the Islamic State uh, seized uh, a number of cities in Syria and in Iraq, the U.S. shifted strategies and made defeating the extremist forces the main uh, goal, and uh, getting rid of Assad was the secondary goal. So that meant, objectively, that the U.S. was not going to try to get rid of Assad um, as a first um, priority. Uh, and that led to serious breaks with all of the rebel groups, including the ones that had nominally supported the United States, because they still saw Assad as the enemy. And that plays out down to today, where officially the U.S. strategy is to defeat the Islamic State first, and then uh, deal with Assad as part of our transition government uh, later down the line. Uh -huh. uh, but the examples of U.S. rebels shooting at the U.S. troops would be a reflection of that very, very serious policy difference. Uh, if you're in the field, it makes a huge difference. If you're fighting Assad as your main enemy and you'll ally with uh, Nusra and other extremists uh, to achieve your goal. If you're backing U.S. policy, you would not. You would fight against Nusra. And so far, the uh, so-called moderate groups the U.S. is working with have been lining up with Nusra and other extremists against Assad. Yeah, I, I remember just some months back now, this summer, the, a State Department video of a State Department press conference uh, in which the State Department spokesman uh, is asked, just as Syria is about to retake the, the city of Palmyra, do you want Syria to retake that city or ISIS to maintain it? Uh, and the guy couldn't answer. He clearly had yeah. not been authorized to give an answer to that, uh, which, which shocked lots of people who passed it around on Facebook, right? But it seems the U.S policy has not moved away from, uh, you know, opposing the Syrian government in every way possible. Well, it's not in every way possible, but it clearly uh, the medium long-term goal of the U.S. is to oppose Assad and get rid of him. It's the short-run issue that is the, the huge problem for the U.S., and it's reflected in that State Department answer, which is they don't want to say they support Assad in retaking territory, but neither do they want to say they're supporting the IS, and it, it's a political conundrum that uh, you, you, you can't square the circle. You've got to have one or the other, and the U.S. Uh, wants to have both. 
Uh, and now we have what happening at the United Nations as a result of Russia uh, exclaiming that the United States has committed a gross crime and uh, and violated the peace and the ceasefire. Uh, the, the U.S. newspapers are telling us the problem here is a Russian diplomatic row, not, you know, the United States bombing people. What What is going to come of that? Well, I, uh, maybe your listeners can just imagine what would have happened if the Russians had bombed a U.S. base or a Kurdish base in the region. What would the reaction of the U.S. and then afterwards said it was an accident? Oh, my God, it was an act of war for the right wing and the hawks in the U.S. would call for an immediate end of any cooperation with Russia. How dare they bomb our allies? How dare they claim it was an accident? We want an international neutral investigation to into these matters. You know, there would be a huge hubbub. Of course, because the U.S. did it, it's okay, because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. Um, I would hope there could be some kind of an independent investigation. I await the uh, version of what happened coming from the parties involved. I think we're going to find a lot uh, more going on than, than the U.S. currently admits. Well, we have just one minute left. Reese Ehrlich, is the United Nations United Nations, or is it a, a tool of the United States? I mean, ought it not to try to hold the United States accountable for that bombing and for the, the entire war itself, for that matter? Well, I, I agree with you. I think the United States should find the, hold the U.S. Uh, uh, guilty, uh, but that's not likely to happen given the structure of the U.N. Uh, the U.N. does do some good things, particularly in the way of humanitarian relief, uh, refugee uh, health, uh, education, and so on. And I don't knock the U.N. overall. But when it comes to the Security Council and these kinds of issues of peace and war, uh, the, uh, the Security Council is pretty much useless. Pretty much useless. A lot of work to be done there. Thank you for the work you're doing and for filling us in. Reese Ehrlich, catch up with him at reeseehrlich.com. He's on book tour. Reese, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Always a pleasure. I'm very happy to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio Colleen Rowley, a retired FBI agent, a former legal counsel who taught law enforcement ethics and who, of course, was a 9-11 whistleblower. Colleen Rowley, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Hi, David. Hi, great to hear from you. I have a sore throat. I hope you'll do most of the talking. I want to ask you about the uh, current state of military madness, but uh, first I understand you have an upcoming uh, award ceremony uh, for the latest recipient of the Sam Adams Award. Can you remind people what that award is and tell us uh, what's coming up? Yes, uh, Ray McGovern had a colleague way back during the Vietnam War who found that they were, um, you know, falsifying the intelligence, which, as you well know, uh, is always this, these lies are always a pretext for war and also for, in the case of, um, in the case of Sam Adams, for sustaining the Vietnam War when uh, General Westmoreland <clears throat> and the other generals would lie and say they were making progress even though the, the Tet Offensive and My Lai massacres and all those things were going on, they would go out to the public and say, you know, we're winning the war in Vietnam. Of course, very sadly, we're at a similar state, stage right now. Uh, anyways, uh, so Ray McGovern had this great idea that they would, we would give an award for integrity in intelligence. Uh, it's, it's often whistleblowers who are, have the courage to tell the truth to the public, but not always. Sometimes... 
even there are people who fight the good fight internally, as actually Sam Adams did. And, um, and so for 15 years, um, and 50, this will be the 15th annual Sam Adams Award that will be given to uh, former CIA uh, official John Kiriakou, who had the courage to tell the public that the uh, uh, Bush administration was torturing people, uh, you know, long, long, many years ago now. But uh, what happened afterwards is that he was retaliated against and eventually ended up serving about two years in prison as a result. Unfortunately, you know, Voltaire, I think, said this, um, telling the truth when the government is wrong is a very dangerous uh, job. And it turns out of our 15 awards, at least a couple, three, four of them, including um, Chelsea Manning, uh, have had to do have have had to be um, do prison time for their truth telling. Uh, some of the people, um, one of I'll say myself, is, I'm in that category. I was very lucky uh, to have much less retaliation than uh, having to go to prison for telling the truth. But anyway, on um, we are. Tagging along on the World Beyond Wars uh, No War 2016 conference, and so um, if people are at that conference, they can stay stay a little longer in the K Chapel at American University on September 25th, Sunday, September 25th, beginning at four. We'll hold our annual award ceremony. This time, honoring John Kiriakou for um, for his opposition to torture. Anyway, I uh, hope any, every, anybody can come. It's free. Uh, the public is welcome to attend. The details are on the website, too. Uh, the, and if you go, it's both the Sam Adams um, Associates for Integrity and Intelligence. We have our own website, and I think it's on the World Beyond Wars website as well. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, the conference is at worldbeyondwar.org. Uh, and as we speak, Friday, September 23rd is full to capacity, but people can still register for Saturday and Sunday. Uh, with this event, Sunday evening, uh, there's actually a little bit more capacity. It's a bigger space than uh, the other events. Uh, hopefully, by the time this reaches uh, listeners on radio stations, there will still be room for people to uh, to register for Saturday and Sunday at that conference. And of course, a big nonviolent protest action at the Pentagon the next day, the, the 26th, uh, which may see some more people in, in legal difficulty in the United States. <laughs> um, uh, Colleen Rowley, wh what do you make of the, the current state of U.S. militarism abroad and protests of some of the the disasters that result back home uh we we've at rootsaction.org we've been cheering for colin kaepernick and others sitting out the national anthem and protesting racist police violence at home but then even they conspicuously cheer for the military as if we can go and bomb dark-skinned muslim countries around the world endlessly for no discernible reason and not have that uh, not have the bombs land in the ghetto as as dr king said not have the weapons given to the police and and the, the racism uh come back domestically Precisely. Um, and that is exactly why I've been writing this on social media and to my various Google lists, because it is something that, um, as evidenced even by Colin Kaepernick and the, the media coverage of his opposition to the uh, police repression of blacks inside the United States, this is really the point that's missing. Uh, even Colin Kaepernick doesn't understand 
that the, the, the violence that has now blown back inside the United States, and it's not just the police uh, reckless shootings of people in the United States, it, it manifests itself on a variety of levels. But we have an increased violence in the United States, which actually I predicted uh, when I when I wrote a memo in 2003 on the eve of the Iraq War, just a couple of weeks, I realized that this would be the case. And it's not hard to realize that you would have this blowback of increased domestic terrorism, even inside the United States, but also the senseless mass shootings. The, the militarization of the police, that was what I actually pointed to in my memo uh, way back in 2003, all of these are forms, they are direct consequences of our militarism abroad. And again, I, that's why I wanted to talk about this, because even astute observers of the, of the wars um, don't understand that this is how it works. Uh, I, I had a group that was debating uh, the Hunger Games. So... So, for instance, these fictional plots, and The Hunger Games is just probably the, the best well-known one, but there are many other movies with the same plot that have this idea that as long as uh, human beings are allowed a spectacle of witnessing this, almost in a pornographic way, this worst violence, The Hunger Games is a good example, having the young people have to kill each other in front of an audience. Uh, there's this plot that goes... As long as humans can get it out of their system by witnessing horrific wanton violence, that somehow this will help. You know, they'll get, the, get it out of their system this way. And I suppose people think that by going to football games and watching some of those spectacles, that somehow this helps in the, in the sense that then they, we won't need war. Human beings need war because it's in their blood or something like that. So this is exactly the opposite. Certainly, fictional writers, you know, it's a fine little thing for them to do. But it's exactly the opposite. When we have a culture that shows us, uh, you know, violent scenes, even in movies, it's called copycat violence. And I hope the, the psychologists jump in here and tell us this. Because when there's a movie out there, I remember long ago there was a movie that showed a scene where young people were daring each other to lay in the middle of a highway at night and, uh, of course, play chicken with cars coming. And you know what happened? Uh, young people went out there and said, I'm going to try to do that. Uh, th this, is, this is why they tell you in those thrill uh, things, you know, do not try this at home when they're showing you some of this stuff. Because what happens is when we witness uh, th these kind of violence, people will try it. And you see these mass shootings now, the, the, the Aurora Theater and the Newtown and the, uh, and the uh, Navy Yard shooters. When you, when you grow up being exposed to the violent video games, which, by the way, are used as a recruiting tool for, for becoming more militaristic and joining the armed services, uh, when you see this, when you see it in our movies, you know, almost every movie now has a plot of horrific violence. On top of the fact that our government, our leaders, are extolling people like American sniper heroes for shooting the most people as possible. Um, so young people grow up thinking, that's how I can become a hero. So uh, ISIS, for example, when they show their, um, their videos of terrible uh, beheadings and uh, burnings of people alive, etc., 
they actually realize that what they're doing is they're encouraging more brutality and more people to say, well, I can do that too. Um, and maybe I'll be famous and maybe I'll be a hero and maybe I'll be achieving some noble, uh, heroic cause. So ISIS actually gets it better than the United States does. The United States is not understanding that the blowback from the, this, these uh, wars is now the war come home. And, and again, I, I think it's something that's really missing. Um, uh, one of the things that we talk about all the time is the suicidal um, problem. You know, we don't have any casualties in our American troops uh, other than suicides. Um, and I, I actually have to pause here for a second because I'm on Facebook all the time, and people will say, "Oh, Colleen, you're you're uh, you know you know you're 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 overreacting, etc." Well, I've personally now known, um, sometimes indirectly, not personally, but I've actually known per, uh, people. Uh, some of them are friends of my kids, etc. Um, a lot, like a dozen people that have either been killed in Afghanistan or Iraq or have committed suicide. And just in my hometown here, two miles from my house, uh, uh, an Iraq veteran killed his wife and five-year-old last year. So it's, it's not just suicidal violence that is a blowback of the wars. It's also homicidal. Uh, and, I, and I think the, this is important to understand. If people that traumatize vets and vets who have become, um, you know, been given this bloodlust and whatever, don't only kill themselves. They also go out in public places, the, the shooters uh, that killed the police in, um, in uh, Louisiana. Uh, he was a veteran, and actually many, many, we hardly ever hear it. The news always covers this up, or they bury it in the very last line of these terrible stories now about mass shootings. But the Navy Yard shooter was a vet. The D.C. sniper was a veteran. Even Timothy McVeigh, uh, who had, was the, the top domestic terrorist in the United States, was a veteran. And our we had a, we had a defense intelligence analyst who wrote this a long time ago and got got pilloried for mentioning that some of our domestic terrorists would now become were, would be veterans. Uh, so this kind of thing is, is blowing back on the United States, and until we can, and people realize that the cost to themselves, if they, if they just think we're bombing foreigners and we're, you know, you know it's, it's helping our freedom, uh, even Colin Kaepernick said, you know, the military veterans who went to his side and said, you know, we fought for your right to have freedom of speech. If people believe that the war is serving this good purpose of giving us our, our freedoms and our liberty, you know, many Americans will, be, will fall for that propaganda. But if they understand that there are direct costs to themselves and that their own insecurity of going into a, a theater or a church or a school or having their kids go to school and now be scared out of their wits that somebody's going to bring a gun and be inspired by these, this war violence that is all around them. And I think that's a real point that people are missing right now because this is a cost that we're paying. 
It is indeed. I, I think we also have to get people to care about slaughtering millions of people abroad uh, because people imagine that that the veterans and the military families in the United States are the extent of the suffering in these wars uh, when 99% of the suffering uh, is left out in that story. Uh, but that was, that was absolutely perfect for a day with my sore throat. Colleen Rowley, uh, former... 9-11 whistleblower, retired FBI agent, and leading peace activist. And I look forward to seeing you, Colleen, at No War 2016 in Washington, D.C. Yes, I am looking forward to it, too. Uh, I just saw Jill Stein on Fox News, and she said we need more debate about these issues. And that's precisely what I hope uh, the No War 2016 conference will do. It, it will, and we need more candidates in those debates for... Uh, elections for president. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.